Dear friends, we are happy to welcome you at the Creative Society Global Talk on Education project, the series of new live broadcasts on Alatra TV. Today we are communicating with a very interesting person and it's my true pleasure to introduce him right now. Today we are communicating with Dr. Dylan William. Dr. Dylan William is Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London. In a varied career, he has taught in inner city schools, directed a large-scale testing program, served a number of roles in university administration, including dean of a school of education, and pursued a research program focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment in support of learning. Dr. William, welcome on Alatra TV. Good to be here. My name is Dr. Konstantin Rybachuk. I am a Latra International Public Movement participant. If you are watching us for the first time, just a few words about our movement. International Public Movement Alatra is 100% a volunteering movement, and uh, this is an association of active, honest, and friendly people who inspire to use their best human qualities for the benefit of the whole society. It's a new format of relationships regardless of nationalities, religious, social status, political views. So welcome everyone again on Alatra TV, and we begin. Dr. William, let me ask you the first question. This is the question that we always ask our speakers. How do you personally envision the society where you, your loved ones, and all other people in the world would live comfortably and happily? Can you describe this society for us, please? I think the simple answer is no, I can't, uh, because I think it's a very complicated idea. Uh, in my work, I pursued the idea of helping people become more effective at the kinds of education that they think are most beneficial to their local societies. And so I've tried to avoid saying too much about what education should be for. I think what we should be trying to do in education is to empower people to take control over their own lives, to pass on civilization from one generation to the next, to prepare people for active um, citizenship, and then also to prepare people for the world of work. And I think the balance of those things will be different in different societies. So I don't think there's a single answer to this, but for me, I think the, the, the key idea here is human flourishing. It's one in which people are able to flourish and that doesn't mean doing what they want to do. Sometimes it means that they can actually be exposed to ideas that they would never have come across. So I think that an education system should actually open people's eyes to things about what might be possible to support them and also to give them a, a fair idea of things they might not want to do in education. But I think this idea of human flourishing, the idea that every person has this chance to flourish in this world, irrespective of their nationality, their abilities, their gender, their ethnicity, that to me is the key idea here. So this is uh, education where every person has a chance to develop all the time, lifelong, both personally and professionally. Absolutely. And of course, those trajectories will change. So you know, I, I think that we do need to provide a, a sound foundation in mm. early years education. You know, I think in, in most cultures, uh, literacy is important. And therefore, we need to make sure that students are acquiring that kind of, of, of ability. But I think we also need to be aware of what Elliot Eisner called the null curriculum. 
the things that are mm-hmm. not there, the things that an education system does not talk about, the things that are mm-hmm. silent. And I think that's often a very difficult issue to talk about in some societies. But I think we have the real curriculum, students' lived daily experiences, but also the omissions, the things that are not there. And I think we need to talk about those as well. What are students not being told about? What are they not hearing about in their education? One of the things I believe, uh, that's my personal opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, we'd like to hear your opinion. The questions of humanity and morality, how important is it to raise in schools? Because right now, I'm also a teacher, and I believe that modern school does not pay enough mm, attention to these particular two questions, the questions of humanity and morality in schools. What do you think about it? Well, I think that's true in many systems. Uh, in, in other systems, you have a very great deal of attention. So you could take a, a system like the Netherlands or Australia, where many children go to religious schools. Um, the mm. schools are chosen by parents. So in the Netherlands, I think 75% of students go to a, a religious institution of some kind. In Australia, the system is divided between government schools, independent schools, and Catholic schools. And parents can choose an education that really does emphasize that moral dimension. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for me, I think the the, the real challenge, the the, the difficult issue that we have to grasp is to what extent parents can decide what kinds of education their children get. Because I don't think parents are the only people who are consuming education. Education is consumed by everybody. Everybody benefits when education does a good job and everybody loses out when education does a bad job. And therefore, I don't think the parent's voice can be the only voice in deciding what it is that education does. I think we have to have broader input from from all the people who who have a stake in society because then we can have an education system that meets everybody's needs. I see. And um, Dr. William, from your point of view right now, what are the most challenging challenges in education, let's say in any country, in let's say in the United States and in the world? What are these challenges that now we're facing? I I think the greatest challenge we have is that in most countries, education systems were not designed for the world that we have. In other words, they were designed when only a small number of people needed to reach high levels of educational achievement. So what we had was an education system that if you like, Uh, looked for the normal distribution, the bell curve. We taught students, we taught all students the same way. Some students understood, some students didn't, and we thought that was okay. We thought it was okay that only a small number of elite individuals reached high levels of educational achievement because the others would work with their hands and they'd be told what to do by somebody with a high level of educational qualification. I think as starting with the horse and then the tractor and then the electric motor, the, num- the number of jobs that where you can actually survive just by renting your muscles to a, an employer are declining. So, so brawn or muscle jobs are declining, brain jobs are increasing, and therefore we need to reconfigure our education systems you know, mm-hmm. to reflect the fact that everybody is going to be a knowledge worker. And how to redesign this education so every child in the world could get a chance to become, to get what he can, based not on his origin, but on his uh, knowledge, on his desire to study, uh, 
on his hard-workedness? How to redesign this education? What do you think? Well, I think the starting point is to move away from this linear model of education where we teach everybody the same thing and some students get it and some kids don't to what I would call a contingent model. The idea is we set a basic level of achievement into including literacy and numeracy and we regard any student who we do not who we do not get to that level as a failure of the education system. This is the level of numeracy that we actually need. This is the level of literacy we need. To, to participate effectively in society. And, you know, you, we can argue about what that should be, but the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, has set a score of around 420, where the international average is 500, a score of 420 on their PISA tests. And I think that's a reasonable aim. So what I'm saying is we should get every single student up to that level of achievement. And if it requires more resources to get that student to that level than it does for other students, then that's what we should do. So I'm worried far more about the students who find learning difficult than about the students who find learning easy. People worry about stretching our elite students. And I used to worry about that. I worry now far more about the students who find learning more difficult because the kind of society we have depends, I think, on the level of education of those students. Is every single student leaving school able to participate effectively in society? So I think directing more resources to the students who need more resources to be successful. Uh, I sometimes say that as teachers, we should destroy the bell curve. The bell curve of results is what nature gives us. And if we're just getting a bell curve, we're not doing our job as teachers. Our job is to get every single student up to the level that they need to participate effectively in society. We may fail, but I think that should be the goal. Mm -hmm. So the goal, uh, let me make a little conclusion for our uh, viewers. So the goal of education is to help every single child through the school to become a good citizen, honest citizen who is able to participate actively in the life of the society for the benefit of the whole society? Well, I, I'm not sure I'd go quite that far. For me, human flourishing is the really important part. And so it may be that some people don't particularly want to participate much in society. Um, I think it's a shame, but some people may want to go and live on their own in, a, in, in the woods somewhere. And I think that's okay too. So for me, it's about the, the flourishing of the individual. And in most cases, that's, a, that's achieved by, function, by looking at the whole of society. But I don't think we should say that young people have to participate in that community activity or that community activity. That seems to me to be going too far. Mm -hmm. And please share with us uh, human flourishing. Uh, tell us more about it. What um, meaning you put into this phrase, human flourishing? Where should be human flourishing? I mean, how far? Uh, because as far as I understand, we are speaking here about the culture self-improvement which can be either personally professionally individually can you tell us more about it well i think it's a complex idea because i think we the more you actually try to define it the more you end up constraining it but i think the, the basic idea is that each individual has the opportunities to become whoever they have the potential to be. So we expose them to ideas about what it's like to be a mathematician, what it's like to be an artist, what it's like to be a musician. So we get that early exposure when children are young. 
And then they can make better informed choices about what kind of human being they want to be. And of course, those things are constrained. I think societies are important in, in setting limits on, on, on particularly on how people interact with others. But for me, that idea of, of becoming rather than being, the idea that of a continuous unfolding of, of, of the individual and changing direction and people changing course at relatively late stages of their lives because that's what they want to do. I think all those things, all those possibilities. But what I'm really saying is I, I don't think that one's position in society, one's gender, one's ethnicity should be a constraint on what kind of human being one is able to become. Your, your wishes may drive in one direction rather than another, but, that you, but those kinds no, of societal, yes, the, the societal factors should not be saying you cannot be a doctor because you're a female. You cannot be a plumber because you're a female. That, that kind of thing seems to me to be a, a, a hallmark of a very dysfunctional society. I see. The role of the school in helping every single child in flourishing what should be the role of the school here? Because we are uh, talking right now about, again, correct me if I'm wrong, about redesigning of the school. What should be the school like to help every child to flourish successfully? Well, I think the simple answer to that is we don't know. Um, I've been talking about the aims of the education system. How we get there is a separate set of issues, which are actually... Uh, I think, more easily tackled because they are scientific and technical questions. So once we are clear about what we want education to do, then we can have a discussion about which forms of education are most likely to achieve those aims. Um, uh, I think it's very easy to criticize schools for cre killing creativity, for example, for squeezing out student, uh, students' ideas and passion, the idea that knowledge comes in 35 or 40-minute chunks, and you have to move from one room to another room for a different subject. You know, those ideas are very easy to criticize, but they're actually, they're actually been quite effective. And so, you know, we've, we've seen people criticizing a school with eight 40 minute lessons in the day, and schools have moved towards much longer periods of time. But in fact, some recent research in cognitive psychology has shown that doing something for 30 minutes and then not doing any more of that for that rest of that day and doing 30 minutes again tomorrow is more effective mm -hmm. for long-term memory than doing one block in an hour. So I think there are lots of things that we're learning about the nature of, of, of how human brains work that mean that we can actually improve schools. But I, I, I do think that the idea, and certainly in uh, elementary or primary education, I think the idea of a small group up to about 15 children working with one teacher um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a confined setting, I think that is going to last for quite a long time. I think there's nothing wrong with that kind of approach. Um, you, know, you, you see that working very successfully in preschool in Finland up to the age of seven. You see working successfully in the United States in, in some preschool provision. I think that idea of uh, helping children develop language uh, through play and things like that, I think those things are it's pretty well established that we can't do much to improve that, I don't think. Uh, the, the interesting thing, I think, uh, the reason that the education system is upside down in most countries is, first of all, most countries, the, more, the, the older you are, the more money is spent in your education. So you spend more on university students than on high school students, more on high school students than, than primary or elementary school students, 
and more on them than we do on preschool. And the research evidence from people like James Heckman is we need to turn that upside down. We need to spend lots more money on early years so then students become more autonomous learners when they're older. The other thing that's quite interesting is that the quality of people's professional preparation seems to matter more in primary settings than, than high school. So training teachers doesn't seem to make much of a difference in how good they are at university or high school level, but the qualifications or the education received is crucial for the early years because structuring well-designed environments so that children can explore and learn at the same time. It's not just free play. It's play that is designed to develop linguistic and numerical skills. That seems to be more difficult because you can't just tell a four-year-old. They have to kind of play in that environment to make sense of it. They have to develop their own language skills. And so I think that and spending more money on the education of the youngest children, including the training of those people, the people who work with those children, would be an important priority for improving education systems. You know, uh, what me reminds it that uh, if we can compare uh, early education with building a house, so early education is like foundation of the house where we are investing a lot of efforts, money, material, uh, time because the foundation of the house is the most important thing because we can't build a good house without a good foundation. Um, Dr. Willem, in this regard, let me ask you the question then um, about, let's say, social security of teachers. What should be the social security and working condition of teachers so they could maximize their professional and creative potential in order to help their children in turn to maximize their creativity and develop? I think this answer is going to depend a great deal on the culture and the society in which we're having this discussion. Uh, but I do think that as a basic matter of, um, of economics, we should be selecting teachers rather than recruiting them. In other words, mm -hmm. we should have lots of people wanting to be teachers and only the very best of them being able to actually get a job as a teacher. Uh, Lee Iacocca, the former boss of Chrysler Motors, once said, in a truly rational society, only the best of us would get to be teachers. And everybody else would have to do something less because passing on civilization from one generation to the next is the greatest responsibility and the greatest honor that anyone could have. And I think that idea that, that we should have, we should have we, the, 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 the life of a teacher should be so um, attractive for people who want to do this. I don't want people doing it for the money. So I think there's a danger in paying teachers too much because then you'd have people just doing it for the money. But the idea that teaching should be a job in which you could actually uh, have a, 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 your own professional flourishing career, um, I think it's very important. So, let, I mean, let me get, let me be uh, concrete here. I think that it should be possible on a teacher's salary for a person to raise a family and buy a home. In their, in their, so basically, the idea is that, that one salary from a teacher should be enough to raise a family. You shouldn't have to get a second job because then you can't do it properly. The second thing I think is that we need to have this discussion about what kind of proportion of time in their contracts teachers should be working. But I think the answer is somewhere between 50% and 70%. So in countries like Chile 
or the United States, teachers are in front of children almost all their contracted hours. So there's no time to meet collaboratively with, with other teachers. There's no time to think and plan. So I think that in a well-designed education system, teachers should be teaching students face-to-face -face or virtually for only about 70%, maybe down to 50% of the time that they're working as teachers. I think, and, then, and then I think there should be time for meeting collaboratively with other professionals and most of the planning, most of the, of the off-task, sorry, the non-work with students should be um, collaborative not teachers working on their own. Um, Got it. So I think they should have at least half of their working time that they should spend for their, let's say, personal and professional development for cooperation and communicating with other colleagues, reading books, uh, searching for new information that they would deliver to their pupil. So basically, continue I mean, their professional I development. Absolutely. But I wouldn't say, I mean, I wouldn't say, I, I'm not sure that we need 50%. What I'm saying is, that fifty percent, you know. Yeah, but I, I think that, um, for example, that is the case in Shanghai. So in Shanghai, mathematics middle school teachers do teach approximately fifty percent of the time uh, that school is open uh, to students. Um, so that may be useful. I, I'm not sure that it wouldn't be any worse if there were if there was seventy percent. So yes. I, I, I'm thinking you need at least thirty percent free time, and maybe fifty percent is useful. I'm just not sure. Uh, Dr. William, you've mentioned uh, like face-to-face -face, uh, learning and teaching. Let me ask you in this regards, um, right now we are, because of the pandemic situation that we're facing in the world, uh, there are a lot of talks about distance learning. From your point of view, what are the advantages and disadvantages of distant learning? And can the distant learning substitute completely face-to-face -face communication between a teacher and the pupil? I'm pretty convinced that where we are now with the technology, the distance learning will never be as good as face-to-face. -face. I mean, I'm not saying that's not impossible in, say, 50 years' time, but it's a lot further away than a lot of people are assuming. I think the other thing to be clear about is what we're doing now in schools all over the world is not distance learning. It's what Paul Kirshner, uh, the psychologist, calls emergency remote teaching. So mm -hmm. if we'd known the pandemic was coming a year ahead of time, we could have actually been doing a much better job. We could have prepared teachers with the skills. We could have designed materials for, for um, distance learning. But that's not what's going on right now. We are trying to scrabble together the best resources we can. So exactly. I, I think we have to recognize that we know quite a lot about distance learning. I mean, I myself did a distance learning degree. So I actually um, got books through the post and I worked through them. And I sent in my assignments. And at the end of the year, I had to go to this um, church hall and take an exam. And so that was entirely distance learning. I had no face-to-face -face contact. Um, so, you know, I think we've, we've been doing this for quite a long time and we know how to do it. But it's still, you know, for most people, it's still not as good as face-to-face, -face, although if you're a worker on an oil rig or a lighthouse keeper, you know, you may not be able to get physically to, this, to, to the places you need. And so I think that we have to understand that in places like um, Wyoming in the United States and Northern Territory in Australia, you know, people have been working with this in this way for a long, long time. People have been working with students, you know, literally hundreds of miles apart. 
So, um, uh, may I, I ask I, you I additionally, may I ask you yeah. additionally, why do you believe that face-to-face -face learning and communication between a child, a pupil, or a student with a teacher is very important and cannot be substituted with distant learning technologies? Well, I think, so think I think there's, there's several things. I, I think we're learning in terms of child development that this kind of um, serve and return, the idea of an adult saying something, a child responding, and the adult responding to the child, that kind of backwards and forwards dialogue is crucial in children's early language development. And it doesn't seem to happen when you've got a robot or a, a screen. So I think that for the education of young children, that face-to-face -face contact will be very important. Now, um, when we get up to high school level, I think increasingly I see high school looking more like university. So I, I, you know, in 20 years' time, I think that a high school teacher may be much more like an advisor, like I am with my PhD student. We meet together weekly. We plan what they're going to be doing. I tell them what to read. I tell them what to do. I tell them what, you know, what feedback I would like. And then I'll, I'll, they get on and, and do it. So I become almost like a curator of learning materials. I tell my students to watch this video, read this book, or so on. So I think that we could actually see high school becoming much more like university education, or certainly graduate education at universities. But I still think that the fundamental face-to-face uh, -face interaction of, of human to human in, um, in, in small classrooms is gonna be the mainstay of early years education for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when you were saying about the high school and that the high school might be like a university in, in some years, it reminded me of a song that <laughs> I heard when I was a child that right now the first grade is almost like a university. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, you know, I think we are, I, I think we are uh, sometimes rushing to try to do the formal stuff before the informal stuff is done. I think the work of David Geary, uh, who's an evolutionary mm -hmm. psychologist, is very helpful here. And he points out, uh, it's, a, it's a model, but I think it's a very powerful model. There are two kinds of knowledge. There's the biologically primary knowledge that we are evolved to do, like speaking and listening. You don't need to teach children to speak or to listen. Just put them in a linguistically rich environment and they get it. Reading and writing on the land are not natural at all. If they were natural, we'd have learned to do it much earlier than we did 6,000 years ago. So the point is that biologically secondary knowledge needs to be formally taught. Biologically primary knowledge cannot be taught, but it can be acquired if children are in a rich enough environment. And I think being clear about what kind of things we're teaching, what kinds of things we want children to learn, mm -hmm. the idea that, that should drive the kinds of methods that we use is very important. And that's why I think that, you know, there's now quite a lot of evidence that some kind of structured play activity is much more effective in the early years for biologically primary knowledge than trying to teach things to students formally. Mm -hmm. Dr. William, I would like to come back to uh, the things that we were already discussing. We were talking about the role of a teacher in the school. I would like to ask right now about the role of parents, because right now we see um, you know, quite a lot of examples when parents, they put their parental responsibility on the schools, on the teachers, but we understand that raising a child, educating a child is not the role of the school only. Parents should be also participating in it. 
Share with us, please, what is the role of parents in educating, in raising children, and in helping them to become a nice member of the society, inside the school? Nassim Nicholas Taleb has written a book uh, with, with the title Skin in the Game. The idea of skin in the game is that somebody has a stake in the outcome. And I think that when you look at the rearing of a child, I, no one has more skin in the game than the parents. So how, no, no matter how caring the teacher is, they're not going to care as much about that child's well-being and the outcomes as the parents are. So I think the parents are the, the, have to be the focus. Schools often say that parents don't care about their children. I don't believe that's true. I've never met a single parent who did not care about their child doing well. The trouble is that many parents often were not themselves successful at school and they don't know how to help. So I think schools have a responsibility from the very earliest days to promote this three-way conversation between the teacher, the parent, and the child. And we've seen schools, even primary schools, having great success with things like student-led parents' meetings. The idea is that there's a three-way conversation and neither adult is allowed to speak until after the child has spoken. I think these provide us with some very good models of how we can actually um, help parents get more involved. I think there are some very interesting technological developments like Seesaw, for example, a piece of software that allows artifacts that children have made to be shared with parents. And so you can actually you know, have children talking to a teacher and then recording um, into a microphone something they're going to do about what the teacher just said and the parent being able to access that recording so the parent can get more involved. And I think seeing, seeing parents as key partners in this process is essential to maximizing the potential of education. Fantastic. Mm, Dr. William, right now I want to come back to the conversation about the creative society and helping of how to help every child to flourish. Um, the question is that right now in the world we have a lot of types of conflicts like military conflicts, economic conflicts, religious conflicts, you know, you, know, you name it. Um, can there be such a thing as a conflict in, in the modern society and maybe in this regard if we have so much so many types of conflicts maybe our modern school is not doing everything it can to avoid that what do you think? I, think that's certainly true. I think that's certainly true that schools are not doing everything they can and that's partly because they're not designed to um, Estelle Morris, former government, government minister, once pointed out in England that um, schools have always done what governments have asked them to do. The question is, what are governments asking schools to do? And too often the governments focus on schooling as a way of increasing uh, productivity or creating industrial growth, rather than schools as a way of um, building a good society. So I think that uh, we, we haven't really spent a lot of time on that. Uh, I think some of Carol Dweck's work are in the Middle East on promoting understanding through growth mindset is very promising. Uh, for me, I think that the, the, one of the key things we should, we should be doing in schools is promoting um, listening to the other person's point of view. If people disagree with you, 
then they may have very good reasons that they have a different perspective. There's a wonderful quote from Abraham Lincoln, the American president uh, from the uh, 19th century. And he's pointing to a man across the room and he says, I don't like that man very much. I must get to know him better. And I think this idea of, of bringing a principle of charity to dealing with everybody else, to, to assume that people who say things that you completely disagree with might actually have a sound set of, of, of experiences or beliefs that lead them to that opinion and not mm. seeing people who disagree with you as being evil or wrong. Um, I, look, you, that, that faith may be misplaced. There are, I'm certain that there are evil people out there. But what I'm saying is, if we start from assuming the best of people rather than the worst of people, then I think we'll have a better society. And I think schools have a role in promoting that kind of thinking. So why might people have done that that you think is wrong? What, you know, are they evil or did they have some kind of understanding, some basis for that behavior? Uh, that's a fantastic example you're saying. And I would like to add uh, and to comment on this, that today's school should be uh, promoting more understanding between children I mean that we need to promote understanding that, for example, we have one common place of living, the earth, one common value, life, and I would say one nationality, human being, right? Things like that. Well, but I, I think that you know, these are not simple issues. So, for example, um, many children are brought up in religious homes, and, those, and many religions regard homosexuality as, as wrong. And so if you've got children who are expressing um, their, their identities uh, and, and, and suggesting that they may be homosexual, then I think children are, don't know how to react to that because they've got their parents saying it's evil and then, then, the, then, the, then the teacher saying you must respect the individual. So I think these are not easy issues to grapple with. But I'm, but I'm saying that we have to grapple with them if we are to have the kind of society that that, that we're aspiring to through the mm -hmm. uh, Let me ask you also, if you, have a ch if you had a chance, let's say, let's imagine, you have a chance right now to create, like with a snap of the finger, a righteous society. Mm -hmm. What aspects would you like to begin with? I, I think that the idea that uh, E.D. Hirsch had in America which is to actually have a sound foundation for what should be in the public sphere and what should be in the private sphere and making sure that the schools focus on the public sphere. So this, I'm not going to say this should happen everywhere, but the reason that religion is excluded from education in the United States, in the public schools anyway, is not because they didn't think religion was important. It's because they thought it was too important to do in school. Mm -hmm. If you actually put one religion over another religion, it makes it impossible to talk to people um, in the public sphere. So I think, you know, for each civilization, for each society, for each culture, just having that debate about what it is that we think should be in the public sphere. What, what do people need to know in order to be able to have civilized conversations with people from different backgrounds? And being very clear about that, um, and then saying, and we're not going to talk about some other stuff because that's just too um, problematic to have a good discussion about. So I think that, that, I think that would be the way forward is to have, and you know, it's, it's not a quick project. 
I think it would take at least 10 years in most cultures to have that conversation about what the education system should be for, what should be in the public sphere. Let's have a debate about what it means to be brought up in our country. How do we produce a good citizen in our country? It's not a quick project, but I think it is worth doing. And let me ask you also additionally, what can help us, all people, to have this civilized conversation daily? I think coming back to that principle of charity I mentioned earlier, if you say things that I find uh, objectionable, rather than being outraged, as seems to happen on Twitter and other kinds of social media, I should say, so, so you know, tell me how you've come to that belief. So, I, you know, it, it goes back to the Stephen Covey principle of um, one of the seven habits of highly effective people. Seek first to understand, then be understood. So the idea is we should be listening to people who disagree with us and finding out why they disagree with us to see if we can find some common ground. Because often we can, provided we're not outraged um, when, uh, at the first thing that comes out of their mouths. First of all, to be good listeners, but not good judges or quick judges, right? Well, the joke is we have two ears and one mouth. To speak with and to listen. So we need to listen twice more because we have two ears, two yeah. eyes, because we need to watch more and one mouth because we using it to speak. So it should be less spoken, but more heard and seen. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Dr. Willem, uh, let me ask you, if uh, this idea of, let's say, overarching society, of the creative society, of the civilized society is close to you, what can be done more to inform people about this idea of the new format of relationship between people so more and more people could learn about it and finally start changing the society for the better, beginning from themselves? What can be done? I, I don't know. That seems to be a very complex question, but I would come back to Gandhi's um, dictum, be the change you want to see in the world. So we start by acting uh, on ourselves, like those who are close to us, by, um, by seeing the good in people, wherever we can, and um, building it piece by piece. There's no, there's no way to mandate this, because you have to, you have to bring people's hearts and minds along. But I think just, just starting with yourself, um, starting with the man in the mirror, as Michael Jackson said. And honestly speaking, the phrase you just mentioned, which belongs, which belongs to uh, Dr. Gandhi, that's, that's indeed one of my favorite ones. <laughs> yeah. um, Dr. William, um, I almost ran out of questions, but uh, <laughs> I do want to ask you, um, Soon, uh, on the platform of the International Public Movement Alatra, we're going to have a roundtable discussion with educationalists with whom we already had interviews about of how to, uh, let's say, to reinvent today's education. Uh, I would like to invite you because I honestly speak and I truly enjoyed today's conversation and I would be glad to see you during this roundtable discussion with experts. Uh, and, of course, if you don't mind, I would like to continue this dialogue and would have more communication with you and discuss questions about today's challenges of education that we are facing right now in the society. 
Yes, well, I, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I, as I said, you know, I don't think progress is going to be quick, but I do think that the goal is worthwhile and maybe the only worthwhile thing is building a, building a better, more flourishing society. And therefore, it's, it's worth it. You know, education is only a part of that. How we design our social services. You know, right now in the United States, we have issues around policing that, uh, that speak very strongly to this. Um, but I think that you know, building a better society has, has got to be the most important thing that people are engaged in. And we can do it together. Look forward to it. Good. Uh, dear friends, uh, if you'd like to know more about the Creative Society project, we are inviting you to visit our website, which is called alatraunites.com. Uh, right now you will see uh, this website on your screens. Here it is. Uh, we are inviting you to visit this website to know more about this project. And if you would like to join it and be one of the speakers uh, at one of the conversations, uh, we're inviting you to fill out the form. Uh, you need to click Join Us button, fill out this short form, which you see right now on your screens in one of the languages you feel comfortable, and send us the message, and of course, we will contact you. Uh, just want to remind our friends and our viewers that today we had a very interesting conversation with uh, Dr. Dylan William. Dr. William, thank you very much for this conversation and hope to continue this dialogue very soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been interesting.